I invite you right now to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at a passage in chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. As you're turning um, to Mark chapter 10, uh, let me ask a question which um, you need to answer personally, but I think the answer will be given to us as we move through this passage together as we come to the Lord's table this morning. And the question is, what will what the Lord has done for us uh, make of us? What will what the Lord has done for us make of us? I want to read beginning at verse 32, and I'm going to read through to verse 45. So please follow me as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is actually the third time in the Gospel of Mark where it is recorded that Jesus predicted his death. Happens in chapter 8, happens in chapter 9, and here it is here in chapter 10. This time, Jesus gives a little bit more information. He's more explicit in what he says. He specifically tells them things that he didn't tell them in the two previous predictions. But what I want you to see in verse 32 is that Mark tells us they're on their way up to Jerusalem. 
with Jesus leading the way. The words, the way, are there two times in the sentence. Now, some translations will simply say they were on the road, and, and that's true. They were on the road leading to Jerusalem, but, but, but the usage of the word way, Mark uses this because he wants to convey an even greater truth to us. Not just they're physically going up to Jerusalem, but they're on a way. They're on a certain path. They're on the way. They're on their way to fulfill for Jesus the purposes of God and the disciples are following them. And in in essence, what we have here right in verse 32 is a picture. We have a picture of what a disciple is. Jesus is leading the way and the disciples are following him wherever he goes. You remember there's a verse in, in Revelation chapter 14 which refers to the followers of the Lamb and it says of them, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's a beautiful expression. That's in essence what we have here. We have the picture of a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. Uh, Pastor Jamie uh, gave to us a couple of years back the definition of a disciple, which we've sort of adopted here, and and many of us can actually say it. It's a very simple one-liner that Jesus, that Jesus, that Jamie gave us. A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And here Jesus is on the way, and and the disciples are following him. Verse 33 says, they're going up to Jerusalem. And we know that in Jerusalem he will be, as he already said in verses 33 and 34, there he will be handed over. There he will be crucified. There he'll, he'll be mocked and spat on and so on. The fate of the disciples of Jesus is linked to the fate of Jesus. Our faith, fate, as disciples of Jesus is linked to the fate of the Lord Jesus. Keep that in mind. So the disciples now, two of them, have a request. And it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, really, that a request of this nature would come to Jesus after he has just said to them that he's going up to Jerusalem to die. But James and John in verse 35 make a request of the Lord Jesus. And the request is, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Whatever we ask. Let me say right at the start that this is the antithesis of true prayer. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. There is, there, is, there is nothing of your will be done. It's all my will, our will be done, and we've got something to ask you. And the antithesis of prayer is though we would treat Jesus as sort of a, a, a magic genie that we can rub in a certain way and he'll give us whatever we want. Someone has said that these two disciples were the first proponents of the prosperity gospel. We want you to do for us whatever we want you to do. There's an audacity here to what they ask Jesus. And the audacity is magnified even further when we understand that James and John, who were brothers, 
were a part of the inner circle of the 12 apostles of Jesus. You remember Peter, James, and John were that inner circle of the 12. It was Peter, James, and John who went with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where, where Jesus began to shine like the sun. They saw Moses and Elijah. It's as though these three men were, were given almost the leadership of this, of this pack of 12 with Peter being the most prominent of them. But notice, they, they've, they've knocked Peter out here. Like Peter, Peter doesn't qualify. Like Peter's not in the runnings here at all. We want you to do for us. And in Matthew's gospel, it actually says that the mother of James and John was there asking Jesus the same thing. How embarrassing. But they're excluding Peter. This reveals this antithesis of prayer reveals their, their self-centeredness. These men are, are living for themselves. They, they have their eye not on, on what Jesus has his eye on as he goes toward Jerusalem. They have their eye on something else. It's all, it's all about fame and, and glory for them. And the interesting thing is, if you go down into the story, and, and we don't have the time to unpack it all, but if you go to the next paragraph below verse 45, we have recorded for us the story of a blind man named Bartimaeus who's sitting on the side of the road and he's, he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus goes over to, to him and Jesus says to him exactly what he said to James and John. If you look at verse 51, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. It's the same line that he, the same question he asked of these men when they said they wanted whatever they wanted. What do you want me to do? You see, for James and John, they, they wanted fame. For this blind man, he, he wanted to be healed. The, the blind man, if you look at verse 52, after he's, he's been healed, Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. They're, they're all about faith. He's all about faith and not about fame. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received a sight and followed Jesus along the road. He followed Jesus along the way. This man wanted to follow Jesus, but the two wanted to sit in glory at either hand of the Lord Jesus. There's a self-deception as well to their, to their prayer because they know that Jesus is going to be in the center and they'll be on, on either side. And it's as, it's as though they're saying, well, you know, if we get really close and we're on either side of Jesus, that, wow, we can really honor Jesus from this position. But it's filled with self-interest to the core. You see, they are, they are masking their, their self-centeredness, their selfishness. They're masking it all by their worship and their discipleship. It's all a mask. There's a poem written by a man named Robert Rains, and it's entitled, I Am Like James and John. He writes, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. 
Lord, I I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want, I am like James and John. After this request is made, the Lord questions them. And then in the other things that he says to them, he begins to rebuke them. And in verse 38, he asks another question of them. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they immediately answer, flippantly, rapidly, we can. They don't have a clue. They don't really have a clue. You see, what Jesus is saying here when he refers to the cup that he has to drink and the baptism that he will be baptized with is he's saying that, 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 that the part of the kingdom of God in following Christ involves a cost. For Jesus, it involves the giving up of his life. He, he drank the cup of God's wrath. He, he was plunged beneath the waters of the fury of God's anger for our sin, baptized, as it were, in that wrath. In other words, Jesus fulfilled exactly what God had ordained him to fulfill, but they did not fully understand what he was saying. And so now he speaks to them again, but not just to the two, James and John. He brings in the other 12, and, or the other 10. In verse 10, verse 41, when the 10 heard this, They became indignant with James and John. They were traveling in a pack, so there must have been a private conversation that happened, but but, but somehow it got back to the others. And they're mad, and and immediately you wonder why they are mad. But, But look at verse 42, Jesus called them together. The word there is literally, he summoned them. He, he, he didn't just say to the 12, uh, it would really be nice if you guys just sat down with me and we had a little conversation at this point in time. No, no. He summoned them. He says, guys, here, right now, we need to talk. And they listened. And notice the others, as I already mentioned, were indignant. And you, you wonder why, but isn't it? I mean, are, 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 do, they, do they honestly, righteously feel like they've been left out? Or are they indig- indignant because they harbor the same things in their hearts that James and John asked Jesus for? They're just as self-centered as James and John are. They harbor the same ambitions. And so Jesus calls them together. He summons them, and look at what he says in verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so. You're not to be like them. You're you're acting like them. You're supposed to be following me, not following them. Remember, the definition of a disciple is someone who's following Jesus and being changed by Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing here. Changing wayward followers 
You see, the, the world has its own ethics in terms of, of leadership and in terms of importance and in terms of power. But the kingdom of God has its own ethics too and, and the ethics of the kingdom of God will always clash with the ethics of this world because the preeminent virtue in the kingdom of God is not power, but it is service. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So Jesus doesn't now in these verses just simply give them a principle of the kingdom of God for those who follow Jesus. He actually, in the next verse, verse 45, gives to them the pattern of his own life and death. This is this being a servant of all. Humbling yourself isn't just a principle to live by. It's the pattern of Jesus' death. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, verse 45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I notice the two verbs here. It is the verb to serve and the verb to give. Now, the reason why Jesus says that the servant has the preeminent position in the kingdom of God is because the function of a servant is to give and to give and to give. And giving is the essence of God. Giving is the essence of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave Christ gave himself up for us. The essence of God and the essence of Christ is to give. And how did he give his life for us? It says here in the last few words of verse 45, as a ransom for many. And we use the word ransom today usually in the, the, con the context of a, 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 some wealthy, a wealthy couple, uh, 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 millions and millions of dollars, and, and someone kids, kidnaps their son or their daughter, and they send them a note, and it's a ransom note. You have to pay so much in order to get your kid, your kid back. That's how we use the word ransom. In the ancient world, the word ransom was used in a similar but, but slightly different way. The word ransom there meant you would pay the price to free a slave. It's the payment of a price to free a slave. And Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price to free us. We're the slaves, enslaved by sin, enslaved by our self-centeredness, enslaved by our self-seeking. Enslaved by the, by the philosophy of the world which is me first looking out for number one. And Jesus died to free us from that very thing. He gave his life in exchange that we would be set free from ourselves. So we come to the table of Christ this, this, this morning, and we do what Jesus said we should do. We are to do this in remembrance of me. In a few minutes' time, we'll put the bread on our, in our mouths. We will eat it. Then we will drink from the cup, and we will remember what Christ did for us. His bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood, which was shed for us. But before we do this, it, it's absolutely important. It's essential 
that we go back to the question that I asked you at the start. What will what Christ did for us make of us? What will what Christ has done for us make of us? And I'd like to suggest two things. The first is, it will make us servants who continually repent and confess our self-centeredness. That's what Jesus is driving at here. Friends, for us to come to the table today, for you to come, for me to come, to eat of the sacred elements in front of us and to not acknowledge again that it was our self-centeredness that put Jesus on the cross would be to render what we're doing meaningless. We, 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 we come to Jesus today to repent. We are followers of Jesus who need to be changed by Jesus and we need to, be, to be, we need to come to terms with the fact that repenting is not just something we did once for all when we came to Christ. It's something that needs to be a continual part of our lives. We are to confess our sins. Listen, we pick up sin constantly. It's in us, it's around us, it's in our hair, it's all over us. We pick it up constantly. And that, that propensity within us to live for ourselves, to be selfish as these men were, and to even use our position in Jesus as some way of taking advantage of him. Oh, that we would repent of that this morning. And then the second thing would be to recommit ourselves to serve Jesus Christ. Do you remember in the old evangelistic meetings of the past, the great crusades, someone like Dr. Billy Graham would preach, and at the end of his message, he would give an invitation for people to come to the front to receive Christ, to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. I want you to keep that image in your, in your mind. Some of my most meaningful moments as a young believer are of those moments when I saw people come to the front to receive Christ. So keep that in your mind because you're going to be asked in a few minutes to get up out of your chair if you choose to do so, if you know the Lord and, 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 and you want to walk with him and you want to remember him in his death, then, then you're going to be asked to come to the front. And as you come to the front, you're going to take the bread and the cup. And, and Lee's going to walk us through the whole process of how we do that today. But when you get up and as you come to the front, can you in, your, in, your, in the eyes of your heart make that a moment today where you're not just coming up here to grab this stuff, do you know what I'm saying? But you're coming to the front to take the emblems of what Christ did for us and in so doing you're saying, out of gratitude for all that he has done for me, I am recommitting my life to serve Jesus Christ. And when we do that, and when we do that, do this in that spirit, then I believe we capture the true essence of what the Lord expects of us as we come to remember him and to renew our vows before, before him. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. So as we eat and drink together today, that is our prayer, is it not? Lord, change me, help me, deliver me from my self-centeredness and make me an individual who is committed to your mission to serve. Let's bow our heads.
And let's take these moments now in silent prayer to confess our sin. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you how your self-centeredness has manifested itself. And then let's repent and put our sin under the blood of Christ. Again, Lord, we thank you for dying in our place and becoming the ransom for many. And we thank you for your promise. If we confess our sins, you are just, faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen.